Hello, and welcome to BJGP Interviews. I'm Nada Khan, and I'm one of the associate editors of the BJGP. Thanks for taking the time today to listen to this podcast. In today's episode, we talk to Nish Jayasuriya, research fellow and specialist registrar in gastroenterology and hepatology, about the paper that she's published here in the BJGP titled Adherence to 5-Aminosicilic Acid Maintenance Treatment in Young People with Ulcerative Colitis, a retrospective cohort study in primary care. So thanks, Nish, for joining me here today to talk about this paper, which has gained a lot of interest from the BJGP readership. I wonder if you could just start by giving us a bit of the context around this study. What are the issues around ulcerative colitis and young people specifically, and how they take this 5-ASA treatment? Um, Well, first, thanks for the invite to talk about our research. So the study is about adherence to 5-aminosilicylic acid maintenance treatments. So I'm going to abbreviate that to 5-ASA, um, particularly in young people with ulcerative colitis. Um, so the background is that, well, ulcerative colitis is an inflammatory condition of the bowel. It comes under the umbrella condition inflammatory bowel diseases. And it has a what we call a relapsing and remitting course, which can be unpredictable. But sometimes there are reasons why people flare, such as smoking background and things like that and medication adherence obviously is is one of the aspects Um, but it is a condition for this very reason that requires and the guidelines advise maintenance treatment and the first line treatment is five amino salicylic acids there's a range of treatments you can have inflammatory bowel disease but that is the first line treatment and there's evidence we know that this drug helps prevent flares of the disease, helps prevent these relapses, um, reduces hospitalization. And this drug in particular is recommended as it's known to be protective, so chemoprotective against the development of colorectal cancer in this group of patients. That's not just um, adolescents and young adults, that's all patients diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And then apart from the health benefits, obviously you have the wider benefits of the disease being controlled. But we know that compliance in general, this is not just in inflammatory bowel disease, but amongst uh, younger populations can be suboptimal compared to adults. Um, For various reasons, it's, I guess, being diagnosed with a chronic condition at any stage is probably challenging but um, particularly at that age group you're kind of going through various transitions psychological other physiological changes and social transitions into adulthood so I guess we wanted to get an idea of what adherence rates and discontinuing rates are to this medication and see if we can identify if there are any particular groups that are at higher risk and hopefully that information might help guide you know care pathways for these patients and um, maybe develop interventions so that was the kind of background to the study mm. and ulcerative colitis is rising in incidence particularly amongst the younger cohort and they're known to have a more severe disease course compared to the adult population so it's you know it's a lifelong condition so it's really important to get it right and get the treatment and um, correct as much as possible as you can at the start. Mm. So this was a study of the clinical practice research data link or CPRD um, which is as you said this nationally representative data set of primary care records that I think many of the listeners will be familiar with because it's quite a commonly used data set in primary care. So you included people diagnosed with ulcerative colitis aged between 10 to 24 years of age and started this 5-ASA treatment. And your main outcome was to look at how well these people adhere to that treatment. So, so what did you find here? What were your main results? 
So what, what we found was exactly that in, in this cohort um, of individuals, we followed them up for one year after their treatment and we found about two thirds of um, individuals actually discontinued their treatment who should have been on maintenance therapy within the first year. So they had a gap. And we also looked at another measure, um, as kind of the details in the paper, but we use a measure of adherence um, and it showed on average um, this kind of group of patients took medication for nine months out of the 12. That was kind of our main headline for the paper. And then we kind of dived a bit deeper into the results. And we found, well, we want to look at who's more at risk. We found actually it was the group who were aged 18 to 24 who were more likely, they were at a higher risk of discontinuing their treatment and were more likely to poorly adhere. So they had a lower adherence, so to speak, to the medication compared with their younger cohort. We also found that we looked at various factors, things like smoking history, psychiatric history, such as anxiety, depression. And one what, what turned out was that was social deprivation. So if you lived in an mm. area of high social deprivation, you were more likely to discontinue or poorly adhere to the medication. Mm. And that's quite worrying, I think, especially in terms of thinking about outcomes for patients in terms of these differences in deprivation. Absolutely. It, I mean, and it probably doesn't come as a surprise, but in a way, it's obviously good to show that that, that data is then that, that is what's happening. And there have been other studies, particularly also in the US, it's shown for in, every increase in dollar medication that there is, there's an associated decrease. There was actually a relationship correlation, so to speak, in the levels of adherence, which declines. And even in the UK with universal healthcare coverage, for the majority of individuals, there is still a d- discrepancy. Studies have shown that patients actually admit to these are kind of questionnaires, studies, interviews with patients that they have shown and mentioned that they avoid taking their medication due to costs. And they've also said that they actually spread out the medication. So something that should be taken every day, they actually spread out over a period of time instead of taking it as they should to avoid the costs. And counsels. So absolutely, it's something that does need to be um, addressed. Mm-hmm. I was pretty surprised at the high rates of 5-ASA discontinuation and you work in gastroenterology. And we touched upon this, but what would this mean clinically in terms of risk or outcomes for these patients? So 5-ASA on average takes about four weeks to kick in, so to speak, will take it take its effect on the disease. And I think sometimes what the difficulty is, is that if your disease is then under control, you might be like, oh, great, okay, I don't need it. And these medications can kick the disease into remission and you might be absolutely fine for a certain period of time or just have mild symptoms that you're happy to tolerate. I think it probably is more common than what we actually think it is. And studies have shown that if people are non-adherent to a certain extent, there's no definitive cutoff line for the drug, not for 5-ASAs as it stands, like certain other medications, that this does lead to increased risk of disease flares. They've shown it increased, increases hospitalisation risk and also increased risk of healthcare costs associated with the disease in itself. So it does have other consequences um, as well. And then we mentioned, obviously, the long-term risk is difficult to determine in terms of it being preventative with colorectal cancer. But our study only looked at, obviously, a year's, year's follow-up, mm. which isn't enough time to determine that. And in this study, you also looked at some of the protective factors for people who kept on taking their 5-ASA treatments. So what did you find here? 
Yeah, so um, so we thought this was interesting. We looked at um, we looked at things like smoking, which we didn't find an association there. As we know, smoking actually can be protective against patients with ulcerative colitis, but we still don't advocate smoking, obviously, for obvious reasons. But what we found was that individuals who required a course of steroids early on in their diagnosis, so within three months of diagnosis, if they required a course of steroids. Now we give steroids if people flare, so it's a great drug but also it has pretty horrible side effects um it's not a nice medication to take but if you required that then those individuals were more likely to actually adhere to their maintenance treatment now you could you could argue it's the opposite of what kind of word is described before in those who feel better after their treatment but if they unfortunately experienced a flare of their disease had you know horrible symptoms of bloody diarrhea abdominal pain and you know time off work or school and unfortunately had maybe side effects from steroids it may be that they experienced it firsthand to have an incentive to be like no mm. I'm going to on the medications that are keeping me well so it just does highlight maybe there's a you know if we can really drive home education as a factor and show what could happen should you not unfortunately be on your maintenance treatment then that could be a potential avenue to help you know individuals maintain on their uh, long-term treatment. Any other key findings you want to highlight coming out of this analysis? So in terms of the analysis they they were the main main findings the the degree of discontinuation it happened within six months of diagnosis and that those were the cohorts who were you know most likely to be at uh, at risk and perhaps obviously finances aren't unlimited but if you're going to be directing any sort of intervention and care perhaps those are the groups that should be targeted to better better their disease control mm. or to make sure that they're kept you know their health is maintained from an ulcerative colitis perspective and these medications are prescribed in primary care by gps so what do you think the take-home message here is for those working in primary care? Should we be doing something different when dealing with adolescents or young people with ulcerative colitis? I think it is difficult, isn't it? Because this is a condition that's diagnosed in secondary care. And then, you know, the care is handed over to primary care, which is where these medications are prescribed. I think the responsibility should be shared care, you know, between both secondary care and primary care. And maybe help have a system in primary care to highlight secondary care services should someone be kind of non-adherent or kind of drop off the radar, not picking up their prescriptions. But I have quite a few friends who are GPs as well, and I've spoken to that about this when I was doing this study just to get their opinion. Number one, I think, is there's been a couple of surveys where GPs have highlighted their lack of confidence in managing patients with IBD, which is, you know, which is fair. We, we do it all the time. We see it every day. So there are educational toolkits to help with that, and perhaps we need to be developing more. I do think also the second thing is that GPs are often under pressure to kind of reduce health and costs by issuing shorter prescription times and sometimes de-prescribing long-term medications and that I think we have to acknowledge that it can have adverse long-term health health outcomes to, to these patients and I know in certain circumstances and certain practices if the patient doesn't pick up a prescription then it's automatically just you just discontinue it or 
giving someone six months prescription rather than giving them every two months, for example, because you're less likely to find that time to prescribe it. So I think we should empower primary care to be able to do that for safe drugs, for long-term conditions, to avoid that, that unfortunate discontinuation happening. That's not obviously the full reason. There are obviously other factors coming into play. I, I personally think I read a nice abstract uh, on this, I think, in one of the conferences a couple of years ago, but asking the question when you see the patient it seems like such a simple thing to do how are you getting with your medication are you taking your medication and then not just that are you taking medication regularly or kind of have you just taken it in the last week leading up to clinic because if we don't ask that question actually look into it it, it can have other when someone has a flare of their disease you clinically make this presumption that the drug has failed and you then escalate their treatment and that has again cost implications the higher kind of going up the ladder they have more side effects as well and you give the patient steroids if they flare despite taking their current maintenance treatment so I think it is an important and it seems like a very simple thing to do but I think, I think it's important we do start doing that before we jump to the next step, step in treatment. Yeah so definitely a role for clear communication and clear follow-up yes. and whether that's happening in primary care or as you say at the initiation of treatment but definitely a role that we could all probably play. Yeah yeah and I think I just very quickly I think um, obviously we know that there are structured transition programs for these patients and I think that's obviously a great place to help um, empower um, individuals when they're kind of taking on the role of looking after their health to help educate them and make sure it's happening Mm, really interesting i just wanted to say thanks very much for taking the time out of your very busy clinical day um, (laughs) to, to join me today to talk about this study it's been really interesting but thank you all again for your time here and thank you very much for listening to this bjgp podcast The original research article can be found on bjgp.org and the show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. If you're interested in hearing more about current research in UK primary care, then please do join us at the BJGP Research Conference, which is being held next year on the 22nd of March, 2024 in London. And the conference website to have a look is bjgp.org forward slash conference. We're looking forward to meeting some of you there and catching up during the networking sessions. Thanks again and bye.